Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the My First Gig Podcast. Whoa. Sharing stories of first gigs and shows. Testing one two three. Hello and welcome to the my first gig podcast. You're here. You're actually here. You're you know, you're listening. There was a while there when I didn't think you were going to turn up. I was kind of just sitting in this room on my own and wondering where you're going to be. Welcome. Uh, my name is Dwayne Dugan. I'm coming to you from a surprisingly sunny Dublin, Ireland. I am a comedian. I'm a host. I'm am I now a podcaster? Can I call myself a podcaster? Before the episode's even begun, I've done it. World famous, world travelled podcaster. You may know me from such podcasts as My First Gig. That's about it. Yeah, delighted that you're here, that you're listening. It's been a long time coming. Three years in the making, in fact. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, three years. Dwayne, you've been building this for three years. This is surely going to be the greatest podcast of all time. And look, here, look, it might be. If you think that, fair play to you. I really hope you do, to be honest. And But no, it's it's just been a lot of stop starts, waiting for the time to be right, waiting for the, you know, the, the perfect storm of, a, of, a, of something to release it. I just thought, look, it's a new year. Let's get it out there. There's some great interviews over the next uh, next series with, with some fantastic comedians, with some, you know, really interesting and funny stories about their first gig and it's just it was a shame sitting on my hard drive so here we are my first gig is finally here um you know it's self-explanatory my first gig i just thought i i started this as a just a regular podcast you know fortunately doing what we do whether it be at like festivals or touring comedians or whatever happens you you come across like just people with interesting stories to tell and i started sitting down with a few of them and just talking to them and I bored myself to death asking the same old questions. I wanted to come up with a nice concept. And at the time, the comedy club that I run is called Cherry Comedy in Dublin. If you're Irish, hopefully you've heard of it. Come on down. We used to have new acts on, brand new act, like doing their first ever set every single week. So I thought, you know, while we're promoting first ever gigs, let's talk to established comedians about their first ever gig. So that's uh, that's kind of just where the idea was born. So here we go, let's go. It's Series 1, Episode 1 with the wonderful James A. Caster. Uh, we recorded this at the Kilkenny Cat Laughs Comedy Festival in the summer of 2018, just maybe about two months after the release of his Netflix specials, The Repertoire Series. So, you know, there was already a buzz about James and it's only gotten bigger since. So I must warn you, you may hear some, some staff in the background because, as I said, we recorded this at the Cat Laughs, which is basically Kilkenny is a street, one street, 
that crosses a stream and somehow turns into a comedy festival every June bank holiday weekend. It's it's an amazing festival. I definitely recommend you go check it out. The lineups every year are fantastic. But finding the quiet corner, you know, is a tricky thing. So we managed to record in the venue where James was performing in that evening. However, there was one staff member who had some very important work to do. Now, you might not spot it, but, you know, those eagle uh, eagle ears, eagle ears, eagle eyes, I don't know, who cares? Those with uh, the perky ears may hear it if you listen very closely, but try not to let that get in your way of what is a fantastic chat. But, yeah, let's get into it. I uh, hope, hope you enjoy the chat, guys. And, look, you know, need your help getting this off the ground, so if you like it, tell your friends, share it, do whatever you need to do. But right now, sit back, relax, and enjoy my first gig with James Acaster. I know, I know, there's a few festivals that I do each year that are in little t- places like this. Yeah? Yeah, and it's just, uh, you put a bunch of good comics in a really picturesque, beautiful small town or whatever then it kind of does well i think i think it's quite it's a recipe that a lot of people haven't tapped into that like it's just yeah like most comics will do most gigs and so if you've just got a nice really beautiful place to live in for a few days they'll all go there and then the locals will be like oh this is great we've got good comedy here and they'll go and see it and then people who are huge comedy fans will go to the first one because they'll travel to see all these great comics in a really beautiful village or town and then uh and then it builds because then people just talk about it if anything it's how to keep it under control so it doesn't get you know too too busy you you came to ireland last year you did a few shows in dublin yep how did you find gigging in ireland compared to say Mm. other places outside of of uh, the uk well it depends really because like you know it's like dublin I've always had a nice time in and always find the crowds really friendly and uh, they seem to watch a lot of comedy and um, up for it. And there's been other places in Ireland that I've been to and never had a good gig there. And it's been hard and I'll, I'll continue to go back and try again. But like, uh, you know, it hasn't worked out for me yet. Um, and there's no kind of, yeah, I couldn't like, I wouldn't know why. Also, there's loads of places all around the UK that, you know, even in the same cities or towns where you go, I do well at that venue and not at that one. And it's hard to know, really. Uh, so when you released the the four specials earlier yeah. this year, uh, what was that like? Because obviously some of those shows were uh, several years old. You've been kind of working on them for a while and it all kind of concluded then with the releasing, what, four hours in one day mm. just out there. Yeah. Was that, was that a strange feeling, just, you know, putting it all out at once? It was a relief. Yeah. It was like, you know, I, I had it in my head for a long time and been planning it for a long time. And, um, you know, the last year of my life had been just touring those shows and doing them relentlessly. Those shows I did in Dublin were, sure. for, were for the record, um, part of that tour. And so, like, yeah, when it, really having them all go out was just like, oh, I, it's it's done now. Like, you kind of don't feel like it's definitely going to be on Netflix until it goes on Netflix. Sure. Because um, you know, that was the dream to get it on Netflix, and so until it goes on there, you don't feel like it's going to be. Are you worried about the uh, the clanging? I mean, there's no way we'd be able to tell them to not do that. We'd be, <laughs> we'd be given quite the. Oh, I'm sorry, you're doing a radio thing. I be in big trouble. In fact, I, I think, I think that guy kind of saw us doing this and immediately started. What he's doing for the listener is just rearranging bottles <laughs> in the most unnecessary task I've ever seen a barman have to, like, he is just swapping bottles around. 
He's loving it. So when you have like four hours like that, mm. that you like, you know, so the first, the first of the shows, when would that have started? Because obviously the show would have been probably about three years ago, four years ago. Maybe. Well, yeah, the first show in in, in the four that, that is like the first one that you watch is uh, it was twenty fourteen, and then the next show is twenty fifteen, and the next show is twenty sixteen. But then the fourth show is material from two thousand eleven, twenty twelve, and twenty thirteen. So like, um, and it's like a best of of those three different shows. So yeah, the oldest, and, and it, even then, I think I threw some older jokes in. So I think the oldest joke in all of them is in the um, actually the yeah yeah it is in the last show about Botox and your eyebrows sliding round to the side of your face, and that joke was like my first ever Edinburgh show that was like probably 2009 or something so gone and, proper uh, back, yeah yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'd written it and I did it on Russell Howard's Good News and then never did it again because I thought well that's burnt now because everyone's seen it and then, sure. and then you realise no everyone has not seen it you did it on Russell Howard's Good News and some people have seen it but most people have not heard that joke do you feel that that kind of that whole idea of that's burnt now the fact that mm. there's all of these out under your name that's yeah. I guess you know you've got to let all of that go now yeah, but not because it's out there, because I don't want to do it anymore. Sure. Okay. So, like, I think it's like I want to move on and move forward as a comic and get better. And so I just i am longing to do new stuff, so I'm not doing any of that stuff. And sometimes people will ask for it. There's one routine that where I sing a football chant for a long time, and people will request that at gigs. And I think it's got round now that I say no, because some people were saying, actually, just last night here, I wanted to request that song, but I'm told you don't do it. I, I just like I, I, I do like you know. I'm, I think I'm, I'm. I used to really scratch my head at like why are people behaving like this at comedy shows, and then I've just realised it's just not. It's not like singing along with like a, a band kind of a thing, is it? I guess. But still, seeing their favourite bit. I like seeing that bit. I want to see that bit, and they don't know that when you do the bit they've requested, it's not going to be fun for them. Sure. They don't think that. Really, what they want to do is go home and watch it again on TV, <laughs> and they should do that. And I f- f- thoroughly encourage them to like, yeah, do that over and over again. But like, um, they go, "I want to see it live," and then they're like, well, "Why isn't this as good?" Or they kind of like are just like weirdly laughing along with it. it's a comfort thing. And it's not really what you're after. I think, yeah, if you do the same thing over and over again, and they know what you're going to do, I don't, I don't think they're going to come back and see you necessarily for for that reason. I don't know. Do you have any idea what your first memory of comedy is? Yeah, I think, well, it's comedy because my first memory of stand-up comedy was seeing a Lee Evans video when I was probably 14 or something like that. And it being like a stand-up or what I would now refer to as alternative stand-up. You know, that kind of like, at the time it was pretty alternative comedy. Um, and like seeing something to observational comedy and thinking I don't know how like this person knows these things about my life and this is amazing that uh you know oh, i do that i do that i thought i was the only one and everyone's laughing at it he's summed it up so well it was just amazing it was magical and i watched that video over and over again um but like in terms of just getting to comedy i think i i was raised going to church and there was like there'd be a sketch every week a little comedy sketch that, in church yeah that people would do like there's this guy um called mark who was funny 
So he would kind of either do a sketch with him in it or with someone else in it in order to teach like some lesson about Christianity, but in a fun way. Yeah. I just loved the sketches. <laughs> I thought it was so funny and I really wanted to be in a sketch and I thought that, that was my favourite part of church each week was that and the music. So the band's playing so it's a kind of like, um, it's like a, it wasn't like a old like traditional church. It was like a, in a, community centre sure yeah you know the band like a rock band and stuff like that I can't that. imagine this yeah happening at an altar somewhere yeah <laughs> yeah but like uh, I would really want to be in the band and play the music and I really want to be in the sketches and do the comedy um, so that that probably um, that that would kind of count as seeing comedy live in person but do you remember the first time uh, seeing stand up live Did you, was it before like long before you'd started it long before you so wanted to do there it there was a guy who and this probably wasn't stand up necessarily, but he was. Um, there was like a variety show at our local village, uh, well, the village my parents lived in. So that was um, when I was, uh, I don't know, I was probably still in secondary school, like 11 or 12. And this guy who just had a red jacket on was going on in between the acts and doing the MC's job basically, but like doing jokes and routines. It's just an old boy who lived in the village, and looking back, some of his jokes were really racist <laughs> and they weren't actually okay. And uh, but it was just seeing someone just so relaxed and making everyone laugh. And I think he referred to himself as he looked like a fugitive from Butlins because he had a red coat on. And I actually got to that because I knew that people in Butlins wore red coats. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> and uh, but like first going time going to see stand up, um, I pinpoint the very first time it started being like there was like comedy nights in Kettering where I lived, and it's hard to know if the first night. The time that I saw stand up was going to watch one of those gigs where it was like a mixed bill of acts who weren't like on TV or anything like that. And it was like, or if the first time I went to see comedy was when I went to see Lee Evans at the Nottingham Trent Arena. I don't know if that was the first time or not. Sure. But um, I remember that gig feeling quite weird because it was an arena gig and I felt really far away from him and not involved with it and felt like actually this isn't very good because I. I, yeah, I, I feel like I'm watching a little tiny man in the distance mm. telling jokes and I don't feel like anyone around me is... So you probably gonna... would have been closer watching it on the telly, look. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just, it just didn't feel great. And it took ages to get in there, ages to get out, ages to find the car to drive out. And you're going, oh, what's the point of any of that? Like, I'd rather have been in a small room watching him, you know. Uh, but like... Yeah, and then I, I went to a pub in Kettering that started putting on gigs um, and called The Rising Sun, although it changed the name to The Sun and to Bar Sun and everything else that had sun in it. But like, I think there's a guy called Kevin McCarran would MC it. It was a Laughing Horse gig that was in Kettering. And Laughing Horse are mainly known for doing gigs in London and they'd spread out a bit. And Kevin McCarran, who's like an Australian comic, would MC it. And I think the first one I went to was a new act competition. And so I couldn't name you any of the acts who were on it, but they all did like five minutes each. And then at the end, someone got through to the semi-final or something like that. But like, I remember going to watch that and kind of seeing some people who did well, some people who didn't, some audience members heckling, you know, and having to be dealt with and stuff like that. And yeah, it was, it's just a, quite a fun, I wouldn't say like I love, it didn't blow my, I wasn't like, this is amazing because I was already into, I still thought stand-up is what I watch on TV and it's those kind of, and I hadn't yet seen the comics who really inspired me to start doing stand-up who were like people like Josie Long and Ross Noble and Eddie Izzard and people like that who were speaking about whatever they wanted and being really creative with it and 
I was like, oh, you can do whatever you want with comedy. It's not just observational stuff. So was it discovering that that kind of gave you the itch to actually go and try yeah. it? Yeah, because I was like, oh, it's like any other creative like performance or whatever, is that you can do what you want. And it's just with comedy, you kind of have to make them laugh. But then even now, I think, well, I don't think that's even strictly true. But like, but back then I was like, yeah, I was like, okay, I can talk about a story of like a silly little thing that just happened to me. It doesn't have to be that everyone relates to it. And I can um, do a weird bit that is just like surreal. And that's comedy as well. And comedy isn't just... You know, you know when you're walking down the street and someone's walking the same way, and you try and both move in different in the same direction to get past each other. Yeah, that's what I thought you had to do. I was yeah. Like, how am I gonna? It just seemed impossible to do those kind of observations um, at the time. So, what, what, or where and when did you have your first gig, and how did they come about? Then, did you did you kind of seek out where would take new acts, or did you seek out people who were doing it? How to join in? Uh, it's kind of accidental. It was. Um, I I was in a band, so I, I left school when I was 17. I stayed on for one year of sick form because my dad had a, just wanted me to. He, he said, stay on for one year. If you don't like it, you can leave. Um, but he thought I would carry on do two years anyway because you get to the end of the first year, you thought I may as well. And I just got to the end of the first year and went, I kept my end of the bargain and I'm leaving school now. And then I just, I always wanted to be in bands with my friends and I formed a band with uh, some friends of mine that was playing music all the time. But I had a very, I had a part-time job in a kitchen, so I had loads of free time on my hands. And then I crashed my car when I was 18, and um, it was just a point in the car crash where my car was balancing on two wheels, and it could have rolled, but it didn't roll. But I, it really hit me hard the next day that if it had rolled, I would have died, and I got really scared about that. And so I, and I was thought about death for six months, and that's all I thought about. And um, I kind of then coming out of that tried to I got very um weird about having free time and feeling like I shouldn't be wasting any of my time I should be doing stuff and so I tried to do things that were more like uh just life goals and ticking things off in some sort of bucket list and like I did a skydive at one point and another thing was like do more volunteer work and do you know do something good had so I went to the volunteer bureau where um someone called Katie Rock was working who I went to school with and uh I uh, weirdly even though like I only really knew her f- properly for this small part of my life I went to school with her but then she left our school when she was 13 uh, and like um, I didn't see her again until like yeah, she was working in the volunteer bureau so that really my only relationship with Katie is this very small window and yet I owe, owe, owe her quite a lot really but um, she uh, she sent me to an old lady's house to paint a kitchen for volunteer work I did an awful job I tried to do a good job, but did quite a bad job. And afterwards, they were like, thank you for doing that, and can we do anything for you in return? And I was like, no, because like, I didn't feel like I'd done a good enough job in that kitchen. I didn't feel like I deserved a reward. And they said, honestly, just is there like something you'd like to do, maybe an experience you'd like to have, or a goal, something you'd like to achieve or try out? And one of the other things I'd written down on my list of things to do uh, you know, on the kind of bucket list was to try stand-up comedy. And I said to them, I'd like to try stand-up comedy. And I only said it because I thought they couldn't do it. Because they they were a volunteer bureau in Kettering. It wasn't like me saying, oh, I'd like to go, you know, on a boat or something. And they could have hooked that up somehow and found someone who knows someone who works in a park or whatever. Like, this was like, they can't sort that out. And I know they can't sort it out. And they said they can't. They said, oh, we don't do that. I was like, oh, okay, we'll see you later. And that was it. And then, like, within a week, they phoned me up and they were like, 
coincidentally, a man has just come in and asked us if we would help him run a stand-up comedy workshop. So we've put your name down for it, and it starts on this day, and there's nine sessions, and then you do a gig at the end. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. And then, like, I went, it was every Thursday for nine weeks, and I turned up on the first day, and it was me and two other people and who showed up, and that was it, and this guy who was running it. And this guy who was running it had done a handful of open mic gigs in London and quit. He was not a stand-up comedian. He was a friend of someone who worked at the bureau, at a volunteer bureau, and he wanted some money. Um, although, also, I owe this guy a lot. And I always, I always speak of him. When I speak of him, I always feel like a bit mean because I sound really dismissive. But I think that his approach was really great. And I think that it really helped me. And it was the perfect approach for someone, for people doing stand-up. Um, and it was that he just turned up and he just, all he would do was say, um, you, you basically had to go away and write 10 minutes of material and come back the next week and perform 10 minutes of stand-up to just him and the other two you know, students, I guess. And we didn't know at the time that that's a lot of material to write in a week. We didn't know that. We just were like, because it seemed like nothing, actually. I was thinking, you know, 10 minutes is nothing. And like, you know, these stand-up DVDs I watch, you know, they're, they're doing an hour or, or so more than an hour so like he's only asked me to do 10 minutes so you go away and do 10 and you come back and perform it to him and the others and they would just say if it was good or not he wouldn't give you any tips he wouldn't say with that bit you should try and do this or maybe you know that doesn't suit your voice do this a bit more it was he was just going that was shit or that was really funny well done and that was it he'd say what bits were good and what bits were bad and then you'd sit down and then the next person would get up and you'd all critique the same thing and just say that was good that was bad that was it that was funny that was not funny and that was nine weeks. Like one week, we went to London to watch a comedy show, but really it was so that he could meet up with a friend and discuss some dodgy deals while we watched a comedy gig. And then at the end of it, we did this gig, which was at the Rising Sun, Bar Sun, whatever it was called at the time. And um, Nick Nick Coppin was MC in it. He's a London comic. Um, I forget because there was two gigs that got put on. Well, I know my second gig was also in the same venue with the same compare. So I forget who was the headliner for the first one, but I think it was Mike Belgrave. And um, me and the other two guys were in the middle. There was an opening act who may have been... It wasn't John Smith, because John Smith was the second one, but he's a funny deadpan uh, uh, comic from the northeast. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I didn't intend to do stand-up. As, I wasn't pursuing it as a thing i was in a band that was what i was going to do this was just an experience like jumping out of a plane was checking the box kind of yeah i was just going to get up and do stand-up i was really nervous about it and really kind of like shitting it but like um i pretended all day like it wasn't happening i pretended just no i'm not doing anything i'm just going to go to a comedy gig i'm to convince myself and not be scared all day and then he said my name i just got up and did it and they was a very friendly supportive audience because they all knew it was my first gig um, but yeah, it was totally not me going, right, I'm going to do stand-up comedy. I'm going to be a comedian and then going out and looking for gigs or, or going out and looking for a, a proper stand-up comedy course that could teach me the ropes and give me the confidence to get on stage. It was this really like, just ramshackled, just a guy, just basically kind of doing nine gigs or whatever to, to this, to three people every week of new material uh, and really just getting told funny or not funny and then doing a gig at the end of it but I I kind of think that's a great <laughs> way to we didn't, we didn't have to pay for it it was free and it was just him sitting, and he he would have a 
like a load of beers next to him and he'd be drinking and we wouldn't be drinking. Uh, and that was it. That was like the, the thing every week. And um, how do you think just the very act of just getting up and doing it and being told if you're funny or not? And then going home and writing every week, I guess, as well. Like. Yeah, yeah. And that was enough. Like, And then it's like, okay, now I can do a gig. And it wasn't until like, I probably then did a gig once every four months for two or three years. And then when I was 23, I started stand-up. Like, that I was, you know, my band had split up. And I was like, right, I'm going to do stand-up comedy now. And then I was way more precious about what I said on stage. It wasn't just like... Because yeah, before I was fine with like, whatever, I was fucking around and I'll do stuff that is a bit hack or whatever, you know. I'll, I'll kind of, you know, fake, fake improvise and things like that when I know I'm kind of cheating the audience a little bit, being a bit cheeky because it's not really improv, but uh, I don't care. This isn't my, this is not my art. Music is, you know. And then, uh, and then as soon as I was like, I'm going to be a stand-up, it's like, right, I'm going to just write stuff that I would want to see on stage. But I had no idea how to do it how to do that stuff that the stuff that I would actually want to watch was way beyond me and my skill set and um I was also get getting like my first load of gigs I got in London were not bad gigs for an open micer because I'd done enough I'd done these little spots elsewhere where I'd been the middle act um when there was like two professional acts either side of me back when I didn't care and I'd done well because I didn't care and so I had someone to vouch for me. I could say, oh, such and such saw me at a gig and they can vouch. So I'd get on this quite, you know, like a new act night that was like not, you know, 20 acts doing five minutes each. I'd go get the middle spot of a club gig, but I totally wasn't ready for it and couldn't do it. And I would just bomb and play to nothing and then I had to really like re backtrack and go back to square one and go, no, you've actually got to start doing the really shit gigs and do those properly. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As far as actually starting out, though, obviously you can't recommend to people to nearly tip their care and have somebody randomly walk into a volunteer center. Sure. But especially this festival, a lot of the people have said that they've done in some form or another a workshop 
Yeah. That obviously, you know, that takes care of the writing and takes care of that first gig. Mm. Would you recommend going that avenue for people, do you think? Well, I've never done a proper workshop, so I don't know. Because my one was literally... Of sorts, anyway. Yeah. So, like, I... I would recommend what I did, but I don't think it exists anywhere else. Like, so, like, you could start it with your friends, maybe. If you know a bunch of other friends who want to do stand-up, like, I would actually recommend it if there's, like, if there's like four of you or three of you, or even two of you, I don't know, just, like, literally have a thing with each other where you're like, okay, we'll both write 10 minutes a week, we'll perform it for each other, and we'll give honest feedback, and we won't get our feelings hurt. You're not allowed to, like, throw a strop and fall out with each other. And do that, and then go right. And we'll do ten weeks, and then we have to do it. So we'll book a gig now, that's like eleven weeks away, and then we're going to do these. And then, and, and like, I'd recommend that because that's what I did. And so, like, I don't know. Like, I sometimes think that it took me longer to learn some things because I didn't go to a workshop. So because I didn't do a proper workshop and get given like notes and stuff, actually writing punchlines and working on your persona and stuff like that were all things that I had to figure out myself. But then I feel like, because I figured out, with me anyway, just as an individual, if I figure something out myself, I learn it properly because I really understand it more. Um, whereas when I get taught stuff in theory by other people, I'm not always as good at understanding it afterwards and um, having a proper grasp on it. I know it in theory, but I don't, I don't yeah, proper and understand it. And with stand-up, I was like more than happy to just keep on failing over and over again until I learned, okay, this is what works for you and this is actually how to do this. Um, but then I think from what I gather from stand-up workshops and courses, the proper courses are that, you know, you get the confidence to go on stage, but you, some of the courses can result in all the acts coming out the same with very similar voices. There's one course in particular where you can tell if someone's been on that course when you see a new act. Sure, you go, yeah. they've done that course because they're speaking in, in these speech patterns and these rhythms and uh, they're not themselves yet. Well, it's, yeah, it would generally be like 10 people coming out with one person's opinion, I guess. Yeah. Or, or well, it's it's, it's not even an opinion, it's more delivery. And you go, that delivery is how they're told to do it on that course. However, that same course that I'm referring to has come out with at least, off the top of my head, three top acts in stand-up who like are very successful comedians so it's not like you know and they've got their own individual voices and they're brilliant so it's not like there's that there's, that's the blanket rule so i think whatever you do whatever you're starting stand-up you can overthink it i think but like really it's all about you following your instincts and just doing it and getting on with it so whether your way of starting it is you just get on stage one night and just try some stuff you've never said to anyone before or you get together with a friend every week and workshop stuff and then you do it or you go on a course and properly do it either way it's got to be that the thing that's going to guide you through being a stand-up is yourself and your own instincts and going I should take things in this direction I should do this and so that's just the push at the start the course or whatever it is is just a little push onto stage to begin with and and which is always the hardest bit, you know, it's like writers always say the hardest bit of writing is starting and sitting down at the computer and actually starting to write. And once you're in the flow of it, it's like, okay, cool. And then you can write a whole pile of like absolute bullshit for your first draft, but you've got something now that you can now chip away at and, you know, hone into something good. And the main thing with stand up 
is that it's always a huge lump of shit and you're chiseling away and trying to make a sculpture out of it that's nice and you've always but it's it's going to be a it's a never-ending you know just when you finish the sculpture <laughs> Some of those shit grows somewhere else. You go, oh, I can't start again, or we have to start on another number of shit. But like, it's like, it's never. Comedy is all falling on your face, failing over and over again in order to achieve something that is this is what I wanted it to be. You know, those stand-up specials were probably you know eight years of work, seven years of whatever it was, and all started off rubbish and not working, and then like worked and then stopped working and then I had to fix them and then I'd, you know and then filming them was like you know it's like, like film them now while they're still working because they won't work you know in another month's time they might not work again and uh it's just getting them there and going okay cool I somehow captured them I got what I wanted and that's what I was trying to do and now on to the next show and that's like, you know, I'm doing the next show now and some nights I enjoy it and some, t- some nights I'm like, this makes no sense, this isn't working and that'll never go away. So I think people often are put off starting in stand-up because they're like, I'm not going to be funny, it's not going to be good and they're so worried about it being good and the whole point is that it's not good for so much of the time and then you you occasionally just get those glimpses of what you wanted and, you know, and you, you, can, you can get it to that. But so much of it is like um, you're not meant to be paraded around the stage with your arms outstretched while everyone stamps their feet and claps their hands and cheers and you're the best. Sure. And yeah, it's work, obviously. Yeah, it's in work, but it's also you're the fool and you're the you're, and you're not you're not this kind of like you're not the jock. You're the geek in school. You're the you're the, you're the, you're the people that which is the person that people can actually relate to. No one relates to the jock, but everyone can relate to the insecure, you know, geek who gets pushed around a bit and, you know, uh, and doesn't know, quite know, you know, is quite unsure of things, is trying to find their way. So, like, you know, it's not about being this, like, alpha male character, which I think everyone thinks it is. Uh, it's, it's, and you're not... You don't have to be this perfect person before going into it. This perfect, perfect for stand-up. This confident, you know. I think that's what the courses give you a lot of the time is the confidence to get on stage. But the the Catherine Sun, many yeah. names. Uh, you're there, about to go on stage. The MC's gone up. You know you're next. Um, do you remember what you're feeding? Uh I was. I kind of. It was a scramble of like incoherent thoughts, and then I remember him saying my name. And then as I walked to the stage, thinking to myself, what are you doing? And literally thinking, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? There's no, no one made you put yourself through this. And also you had to walk, um, basically the stage was next to the front door of the pub, the entrance to the pub. So you had to walk towards the entrance to the pub. And I considered just walking out of the door, <laughs> which I now think would have been very funny. But I didn't consider doing it for a joke. I considered just like, you can just fucking escape now. And actually, that would have been... If I'd done that, not only would it, I think the crowd have thought it was funny, but also I would have found my comedy voice a lot quicker. I've been like, oh yeah, just do the instinct stuff and just go for that. But like, I didn't do that. I went straight on stage. And uh, But like, I was definitely... My thoughts were, I, why are you putting yourself through this and why are you doing this? Do you remember your first joke? Yeah. I um did some fake improv about a uh, and actually maybe this is 
in a way, the earliest joke that made it into the stand-up special, but very convoluted way. So the, the mic stand, um, everyone was going up and you know, t- take the mic out and stand and move the stand to the, the side and then do the set. And I had planned, I hadn't planned to do it. I thought maybe I'd do it. And then I decided to, because I didn't really have an opener. So I just, but all the difference to the mic up the stand and I moved the stand to the side and I, and I said, I looked at it and I thought, oh, actually, I don't think it's very good there. And then I moved it to the other side of the stage. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And there was a sofa on the stage. And so then I moved the sofa around and I adjusted the mic again and I asked the audience if anyone knows anything about Feng Shui. I, and it was like, a, like I was rearranging the furniture and the stuff on stage to so I had the right chi in the room for, for my show, for, for my set that I was about to do. And um, so that, I think a, a version of that ended up on the specials. Yeah. So yeah. The, at the end of the second show is me taking the stuff apart, and the reason initially in that show that I was taking the stuff apart was the feng shui. So I bought that joke back in previews and work in progress shows for that second show, and I was doing it as like I'd set it up at the start that there's this feng shui thing, and then I would um, at the end be moving stuff around and not sure about it. But like I found that. The Feng Shui stuff was an over-explanation of why I was moving stuff around. And actually, one night I just forgot to do the Feng Shui stuff. And then at the end, did all the moving stuff around. And it was funnier that I was doing it without any explanation. And that I was just frustrated with the stage. And I'm kind of happy that it gets that luck. You know, the audience enjoy it more and it's more fun. But that I do know why my character's doing it. That whole show is about doubt and uncertainty and uh, believing in stuff that you're not sure is true. And Feng Shui is definitely one of those things. And the fact that when I start to get frustrated in the show, I'm trying to rearrange the, the, the stuff on stage so I can get the right cheese so that I feel more calm and I can't do it and I get frustrated and take everything apart. So the fact that I know that's why I'm doing it is enough for me. And if I have to explain it to them and that sucks the energy out of the show, I'd rather not do that. So, um, but that came from my, yeah, that's the first ever joke I did on stage. Yeah. That's interesting. That's still, a, still made it or a version of it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So you say that like, you know, you still get to laugh when, when you forgot that line. So do you think it's like, it's possible that to over explain something can kill, kill a joke or kill a bit? If you over explain it. Yeah. If it's not funny. Or, or I guess, in, in I guess the, the taking the audience's, uh, intelligence for granted yeah as well. or if you kind of confuse them by it. I think I was just confusing them it, it was an extra thing of like oh hold on so he's doing this because he's it's feng shui and because he's doing that. so it was like oh, this is why he's doing it and blah 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 whereas actually just the fact that I was uh, clearly getting wound up and part of me getting wound up was me moving stuff around the stage erratically uh, was funny enough about the character like that's the persona and we don't need to know why he's doing it but they kind of get the feeling of it's because it's clearly some uh anxiety manifesting itself and so that's funny rather than kind of doing a bit at the start because also at the start of the show try and explain the feng shui stuff and it was just too much of a convoluted beginning you know it didn't really make sense to start the show with this bit that wasn't the funniest bit in the show and you know um and yeah it wouldn't really and it would seem kind of forced and false and um I just had to had to go right, Joe. You know that's I'd rather get the laughs. And if anyone ever kind of challenges me on it and goes, "Why are you doing that stuff?" I'll have an answer for it. But like otherwise, it's funny without it. It's it makes sense without it. And uh, you just got to kind of 
Sometimes even something really means something to you. I, I really love the phrase "kill your babies" when it comes to editing stuff. And like, even if you really love a bit and it means a lot to you, uh, or even if a bit's really working but it doesn't mean that much to you, taking those bits out and being like, no, even though this is something that works or this is something that means a lot to me, it doesn't work in the context of the show. I'll probably find a home for it some other time. I'll take it out for now, and the show will be better off for it. So, you know. You can over-explain stuff, but some stuff's good explained and some stuff isn't. What changed? I know you said that you were in the band and then the band stopped, but uh, was that the main reason that gave you kind of the, the kick to go, right, This is I'm doing this now? Not really, because I, 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 I thought I'm doing this, but not I'm doing this as this is going to be my thing. I was like, I have no, I've got no qualifications. I uh, live with my parents and work part-time in a kitchen. And I now don't have a band and I'm a drummer and starting up a new band is going to be really difficult. Um, especially living in a small town, you know, like I met all the musicians I was going to meet and um, I just didn't know what to do. I had nothing to do. And I'd done those stand-up gigs and enjoyed them. And so I just was like, I'm going to do these until I figure out what I want to do because I, I can't stay at home like... I was, you know, I really love my friends back in Kevin, but I was hanging out with the same people and we were just doing the same things. We were just all watching DVDs that we'd already watched before every night around each other's houses and we'd run out of like stuff to talk about because we weren't, you know, we just saw each other all the time. I thought, these people are going to be, like, I'm not going to lose their friendships if I'm not around. <laughs> so, like, and also some of them were getting busy. I was just like, I, I got to go out and do something. So I ch- just chose to do stand-up as a way of filling my evenings and I thought it won't be what I end up doing because at that time as well I think I was in the last wave of comics before stand-up was seen as a job again like it wasn't like all the people that I was on the open mic circuit with we didn't think this will be our living and we will make money from it we were just like a bunch of people who had failed at other things or felt a bit lost and which is what was quite romantic about the open mic circuit and what I quite liked is we're a bunch of like this rogues gallery lineup every night of like people who were all different stages in their lives and different things have kind of not worked out and then we were doing stand-up as a way of kind of like figuring those problems out in a way and uh and so I wasn't thinking this would be my job and then because I was a very motivated person and I like what I found frustrating about being in bands was that um, I, w- I just wanted to write new songs every day and do gigs every night. And um, I never found other people who wanted to write a new, you know, new songs every day with me. Um, my friend Graham, who I was in the last the final band with, was more like that and did love writing new stuff all the time. And that band was different, but like I didn't think I was going to find that again. So, but uh, But like, and also in terms of getting gigs, there wasn't enough music gigs to get a gig every night and it was just frustrating but then with stand-up there is more than enough gigs for everyone who wants to do comedy to do a gig every night on on the open mic circuit in London and uh, you can write new stuff every day and do it that very night and so for someone who wants to do that kind of stuff creatively it was just like okay great I can scratch that itch really easily so it's just a good environment for someone who has that kind of drive and so for the first year and a half, I didn't really enjoy stand-up because I um, I didn't consistently enjoy it because I felt like a 
a fish out of water. I felt, you know, I felt like with music, I really knew what I was doing, even though we weren't successful at all. And even though we didn't really have any fans, I was like, I know how to write the songs I want to write. I know how to execute them properly and to perform them on stage. And then with comedy, I was like, I don't know how to write the kind of jokes I want to write. I don't know how to execute them. I don't know how to perform them. And it was really quite a horrible experience because I just felt suddenly like I didn't know what I was doing and that I was really shit at something. I, did, I didn't think I would watch what I was doing, which is like I felt like I would watch and listen. I thought I'd listen to the music I was making. I didn't think I would watch and enjoy the comedy I was doing. So I was like, I'm not going to, this isn't going to be my job. And then a year and a half in, I was like, okay, I do want to do this for a living now. And it was it just took that long for me to find a voice in comedy that I liked that suited me, some material that I liked doing that I would have watched. Um, and again, like, you know, it was like unplanned how I got into doing those gigs, like, like, like doing that material. It was like a I did a gig at noon in Edinburgh Festival uh, where I did a guest spot for someone and no audience showed up. So I did, I did a new routine to two other comics and they just told me to do that routine at every gig. And it became my first routine that worked. But, you know... I actually didn't want to do that gig to two comedians. I was going to just say no to them and did it to be polite. And it's actually a really good, you know, there are loads of open, one advice, bit of advice I would give open spots is that when you start off as an open spot, there are a lot of people who will say no to the things that look like they're going to make a fool of them. I, you know, I won't do a gig to two other comics in a room at midday in Edinburgh. I won't travel all that way. Uh, to do a gig for no money and basically make a loss on the train fare. And I'll, you know, and people will say no to a lot of that stuff. And actually, when you're an open spot, I found a lot of the times when I said yes to that kind of stuff, I would end up getting something out of it. And it would be rewarding and fruitful. And as long as you are taking risks every time you go on stage in the form of trying out new stuff you know just doing anything that will find your voice so trying out new material trying out a new delivery trying out a new persona image whatever it is if you're just trying out every single idea you've got and being as creative as possible and doing every single shit gig and gig that sounds like it's impossible uh then you will find what it is that will make you funnier than everybody else um in terms of funnier at that one at that type of comedy so you're funny. You're funniest at this, and no one else is as funny as that you because you're you, and that's everyone in the world. I believe that. I believe that everybody, if they wanted to, could find a way that they are funnier than anybody else because you are, um, you know, unique in the least naive sense. I can use that. Like you know, we're all similar to each other. All people, predictable, but like you know, there is something about you that is a certain combination of ingredients that makes you you and it's quite distinctive and as soon as you tap learn to tap into that and that's where your humor comes from no one else can quite touch that without looking like a fraud and without looking disingenuous so like that's the thing as an open spot it's just like just find that you focus on finding that and not going down the same path everyone else is going down that looks like oh that's what i should be doing that's what comedians are supposed to do and uh you know even listening to like stuff like this or comedians comedian or stuff like that and going like, oh, you know, there's probably answers here. I mean, what I should be doing, you know, to become a better comedian or whatever. And actually, I, I honestly think the one thing is just like, is that you follow your own instincts and you just 
you know, Josie Long told me early doors, just try out everything while no one can judge you. And that's still the best bit of advice I've ever been given. And, uh, and like, yeah, just do that. Just like try everything out, be honest with yourself, whether it works. And then just, you, you'll develop your own instinct so that down the line, whenever people try and give you, try and steer you in other directions, I've had other comics, promoters and people like that trying to be like you should be doing this you should be doing this you know when you've just bombed at a club night or whatever it is or a festival or yeah bombed everywhere um but people then try afterwards to tell you this is what you should be doing that you can go no it's not you can think to yourself at least not to say to their face but that's not what i should be doing because i follow my instinct from the start and i know that i'm gonna going loads of you know potholes along the way but this is what you know this direction is the direction I should be going in James Agasser excellent stuff thank you for joining me for your first gig <laughs> no worries man that's it there we go in the can episode one done we're on the roll next Wednesday episode two if you like this episode please 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 get in touch obviously do all the usual stuff subscribe leave a review tell your friends you know, follow on social media at my first gig pod across all social media. But, you know, am I just shouting out into the, the abyss right now? Are you there? Did you listen? Did you enjoy it? If so, head on over to Twitter, to Instagram, to Facebook and send a message. Just say that you enjoyed it. Maybe share it and encourage somebody else to, to, to listen in. Let's just prove that we're not all doing this for nothing. You know, do you exist? If you want to exist, prove it. Prove it to the world and say, I exist and I listen to podcasts and you should too. Otherwise, you know, never mind what I'm doing with my life. What are you doing with your life if you're not if you're not sharing my first gig? But sincerely, thank you so much for joining me here on the first outing of my first gig. Cannot wait to bring you episode two. Guest will be revealed shortly on the internet. That's how it works, isn't it? Yes. Check out Facebook, check out Twitter, check out Instagram for guest two ahead of next Wednesday. If you subscribe, you might even get it before anybody else. <sighs> oh, bragging rights when you head into school in the morning. But actually, if you're heading into school and you're listening to this, then maybe I've missed my target demographic. Look, wherever you're going, subscribe, enjoy. See you next week. Thank you so much for joining. I'm Dwayne Dugan. Follow me at Dwayne Dugan. Follow this podcast at My First Gig Pod. Thank you so much for joining for episode one. We'll see you for episode two. Goodbye. It's the My First Gig Podcast. Whoa. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.